Well, one of the hardest things about being a mom is letting go, and so we give you practice most Sundays here at NBC. Just let those little kiddos go on back to class, and uh, the rest of you get to stick around. You know, one of the most universally sweet words in the English language is mom. You know, from, from tough guys that tattoo it on their bicep to little babies. It's just, a, it's just a sweet word, and we hope that we really have a culture here at NBC that celebrates the noble and high calling of motherhood every single Sunday, but what a great thing to, to carve out a Sunday and specifically call attention to, to, to moms everywhere. One of the things that I just want to acknowledge up front, um, any challenge for any church leader across the, the country and, and world, I guess, this morning, is the challenge that there's also another side to this. There are some people who are infertile. There are some who had hopes of having kids and, and things haven't worked out. There are some who've longed to become married and they just haven't yet. And and they're asking questions, God, how long? And this hurts. And some of you that have wayward children right now, and it's a, it's a painful Sunday. You're still thrilled you had your kid, but, but your hopes and dreams are turning out different than, than how you imagined it. I just want to acknowledge that up front and say we love you and we support you. And that's part of being here together is in, in all of the stuff of life, the highs and lows of it. You know, every story has a beginning. A lot of our stories start this way, and we like that. And then you turn some pages, and pretty soon you get to the end, and they all have an end as well. And uh, when you see stories end this way, soon after you learn that life is unfair, that was last Sunday, you, you you begin to place this phrase in the realm of fairy tale. And you say, well, that's that's just fairy tale, and that's where it belongs. Yet when we read about Jesus, Jesus told lots of stories, and Jesus talked about happily ever after, and he kept a straight face while he was doing it, indicating that, that real life and fairy tales intersect. And he wasn't saying it as some fanciful thing, but as something of a reality. I wonder this morning how your story is going. How is your personal story going? Once upon a time has already happened. Thank you, moms, for letting it happen. As Ben said, we wouldn't be here without you. And we're partway through, Right? How's your story going? I would venture to guess this, that your experience, what, what, how you would answer that, has a lot to do with your expectations, doesn't it? Depending on what you expect really sets the tone for your experience. Now, this image right here probably brings up a lot of emotion, right? Probably joy and fear and sorrow and confusion and wonder and memory. For some of us, it's been a little while uh, longer than others. Some of you said they didn't have those when I had my babies, you know. But, but this, image, um, this image brings up some things. I'm pregnant. Two words that alter the expectations, not just for the next nine months, but, but for a lifetime, really, right? I'm pregnant changes things for a lot of people. All of a sudden, schedule and diet and mood and money and the importance of things changes. And just knowing what to expect when you're expecting is helpful, right? Because you're, you're having someone kind of walk through it with you and understand some of, the, some of the process of what's going on. It can actually even give purpose to your pain. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to John chapter 16. We're going to be in John 16 this morning. And Jesus here is offering the hope of happily ever after. And he's doing so by setting their expectations. First grief, then joy. Don't invert those two. First grief, then comes the joy. 
First, let's look at Jesus on happily ever after. The context to this little passage that we're going to pull out and look at this morning is part of a greater chunk of scripture called the Upper Room Discourse. And starting in John chapter 13 and going all the way through to John chapter 17, you have several chapters of a ton of red words all strung together. This is Jesus talking to his disciples in the upper room. And in less than 24 hours, he would be dead and buried. So as you can imagine, John, John devoting chapter after chapter after chapter in his gospel to this little discourse is, is of high importance. Jesus is about to go to the cross. And he wants to be really, really clear just on the eve of being put to death. I am not the helpless victim of circumstance. Disciples, hear me. There are some things coming. This is, un, this is all unfolding as a part of God's plan. If you go to John 13, 1, just leave your finger in John 16, turn over a couple of pages, you'll see the way he starts off this, this upper room discourse as he says this in John 13, 1. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then he goes off on this upper room discourse. The passage we're going to look at this morning drives home a central truth that Jesus taught and lived. And if you're taking notes, here's one of the few uh, fill-ins that you have this morning. The path to joy runs through sorrow. This is a central teaching that Jesus drives home. The path to joy runs through sorrow. Now, some of you are kids. Some of you used to be kids. Some of you act like kids, whether you are or used to be. I don't know if you're like me, but me and my brothers would do this often. But um, you ever look down at a mound of ants or a pile of ants or a line of ants, and they're all like doing happily doing ant things, and, and you get the sudden urge to see them just scurrying about in complete chaos? Am I alone in that, or is that you guys too? And, and you know, God's equipped us. I mean, you can look around and find a, rick, a, a stick or a rock, but God's equipped us with something at all times. It's spit, right? You just spit on that line or that pile of ants, and absolute chaos is going to go on, and it's really high entertainment. Um, we didn't watch a lot of TV growing up, so this is what this is how my mom raised me, is to, to watch ants go into chaos. Um, so, so Jesus does this same thing conversationally in this passage. He, he, basically, he basically sees his disciples doing disciplely things, and then he just kind of spits on it all conversationally, and there's just the scurry of ants. So that's the image I want in your brain. Here's what he says. John chapter 16, verse 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Now, I don't know the timing of things, but, but I almost get the sense that Jesus just goes, you know, he just kind of sits back and watches the disciples uh, kind of go, go into chaos mode. Look at verse 17. It says, so some of the disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will see me, and again a little while and you will not see me, and because I am going to the Father. That's from earlier in the chapter. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. The way the language says there is not this, just that he was, they were saying this once, but it says they were saying and they kept on saying and asking to each other. Think scurrying. The disciples are scurrying at this uh, at this revelation. Verse 19, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, pause. 
I don't know if you see yourself in this at all, but as I was kind of looking at the disciples' response, and it's fun to get inside the head of the disciples a little bit. John gives us clues sometimes, and so does Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, as to what they were thinking. But oftentimes, something's said, and we don't know the timing of things. We don't know exactly what was going on inside. But you can kind of put yourself there, right? You, uh, all these things that Jesus has been doing and saying, and you're kind of, just like us, you're kind of connecting the dots, but you only have the very next minute and your present reality. You don't have the end of the story. So what's going on? What on earth does that mean? And it's interesting that they, they wanted to ask him, but they're not asking it. I, John doesn't go into a lot of detail with that. But I, I see myself in this. See, see if you see yourself in any of this. Number one is that Jesus says something. How does Jesus speak to us today? Primarily through the word of God. Part of why our heart as church leaders, as shepherds of this church, is to keep pointing you to God's word, is that God's word is living and active. It speaks to you. But you have to avail yourself to listen. So Jesus says something. Number two, you are confused and start scurrying. You come across something, you go, what does that mean? Number three, your plan of action is to share ignorance and ask around, right? Instead of asking Jesus, what do they do? They start asking one another. How well do the other people understand this? Nada. They don't understand either, right? So there's scurrying that goes on. Number four, Jesus searches your heart. He knows what you want to ask. Number five, he speaks into the questions that you are afraid to ask or can't even articulate. The Bible says it this way, that the spirit of Jesus that came after he departed actually gives voice to the prayers and searches our heart in ways that we, we don't even know how to pray something. We don't even know what to say anymore. Many times we're out of words. There are no words. Jesus searches the heart and then speaks into the question that we want to ask. Friends, I want you to be encouraged this morning that God uses confused and sorrowful and fearful people. Do you know how unskilled, uneducated, unprepared, and unpracticed the disciples were at starting churches and carrying on the mission? They were terribly under-practiced. Under, uh, they had never done that before. They didn't have special training. Yet God hands the mission to these disciples. A recurring theme of this passage is joy. It occurs four times in this short little passage that we're going to look at. And it's not happy for the moment type of joy, but it's the variety that says happily ever after. It's that kind of joy. So we're going to look at that. It's pretty remarkable when you consider the context. What's the context? In 24 hours, Jesus will be dead and buried. And it's not pretty. It's not just. That's the context of him talking about joy. Also, there's a second theme, and that is the timing of joy. This little phrase, a little while, is how the ESV translates it, shows up seven times in this short passage. As the scurrying goes on, a little while uh, kind of floats to the surface. Reminds me a little bit of kids asking parents, you know, when are we going to get there? What does the parent say? Soon. What does that mean? A little while. Like, it's just a little circular. There's times you can't explain to your four-year-old how long and how far and all of that, and so you just offer them what you can give them at the time. A little while, right? Jesus tells his crew, which are all guys, by the way, that they'd feel like pregnant women soon. Um, Jesus is an inventive teacher. Uh, I love how he goes to a group of, you know, kind of younger guys and says, it's like being pregnant. And they're like, huh? 
Uh, but that's just the way he taught. He taught with a little bit of an unexpected twist at times. Let's read the rest of the passage, starting in verse 19. Here's what Jesus said to them, uh, going on down to verse 24. It says, Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Do you see it in there? Joy and the timing of joy. Those are, those are just two giant themes that, that emerge from what's being talked about. The path to joy runs through sorrow. Know this, that joy and sorrow are exactly opposites for a Christian in the world. Uh, what makes you weep will be cause for celebration of the world around you. And when you have tears of joy of something going on, that will actually be weeping for those around you who don't follow and love Christ. Talk about setting ex- uh, expectations. Uh, know, know this, that you will be at odds with the world should you sign up to follow Jesus Christ. The Bible says that over and over and over again. So if you love conflict avoidance, don't become a Christian. Jesus has a way of coming along and smashing little idols of comfort and conflict avoidance. New life comes through pain. On the other side of it, you'll say that the pain is so, so very worth it. Just ask any mom in the room if this is true. One of the things that I get to do is um, practice some sermon ideas on my family at home. So we had a little, we had a little family devotion time Wednesday night, and, and I was just read this passage, and we were talking through it a little bit. And, and I asked, and some of our older uh, teens were off and about, as teens tend to be. And so uh, I, I looked at my wife, and I said, Becky, I said, how much did it hurt to give birth to Tegan? And, uh, and she looked over at Tegan, and Tegan's there. She goes, it hurt a lot. A, a ton. Like, it really, really hurt. And then our next oldest uh, in the room was Cassie, and Cassie was adopted. And so I said, how much of a process, and how long was the process, and how costly was it to adopt Cassie? She goes, oh, man, it was, it was long, and it was costly. And I said, how far did you travel? She goes, I traveled a long ways and, and had a lot of help. A lot of people helped us do this. It was, it was a lot of effort. And then I went along, on down the line to Kaya and to Eli. And then I asked this question, and I said, if it was exactly double the pain, would you still go through it today, right now, so that you could have Tegan be your daughter? And my wife looks into Tegan's eyes, and she says, absolutely. I mean, without missing a beat. Is that right, moms? Right? Absolutely. 
I would do it. Double the pain of what you just said was excruciating? Absolutely. Now, take the process and the cost and the pain of, of, of adoption and travel. What if it was double all of that? Would you do the same for Cassie? And what did each of our kids do? Each of our kids, when they knew it was their turn, their eyes were lit up, and they were hungry to hear mom say four times over, absolutely. Then I would do it all again in a heartbeat. That's the message of this morning. When, when she was doing that, I sat there just watching this unfold in the living room, and I thought, wow, this is the cross and the Christian. The Christian says, you would go through that for me. And Jesus says, absolutely. I would do that. I would do that for you. And like a hungry child, I'm looking, going, would, would, would you do it again? And the message comes back. Using childbirth to a bunch of fishermen. This is, this is the context. It's easier to preach this on Mother's Day 2015. They didn't have Mother's Day back then. It was Jesus talking to a bunch of sweaty fishermen up in some upper room. He's about to die. And he's talking to them about this childbirth picture. Jesus is tapping into a universal truth. The pain of childbirth is universal, even if you have drugs involved, right? It's still painful. And so is the melting of that sorrow once little Junior is placed in your arms. Ask a woman if her child's birthday was a good or a bad day, and it really depends on when you ask her that question, right? Before the baby's born, if you ask that question, you might get a different answer than right after baby comes out and she's holding the baby in her arms. I had this experience. I was uh, in there with our very first child, and neither one of us really knew what to expect. And she was going through labor, and, and she looked at me, and she, you know, she said, we're never, ever doing this again. And I knew my wife wanted a lot of children, and it's really up to God. I mean, we make our plans, but God directs our steps, and future husbands or uh, husbands who may be going through this at some point, what's the right answer? Yes, dear. Right? That's it. And then, and then literally moments after, moments after Curran was born and placed on, on Becky's chest and she's holding him, she looks at me and she's just got tears in her eyes and she says, I want 10 more. <laughs> and, and no joke. And I said, what? Yes, dear. Now, be careful on that second yes, dear, because we're, we're approaching that rapidly. So uh, you got to be real careful. Now, there's another way we could have handled this, right? I could have said, dear, uh, your logic is clearly flawed. Uh, your incongruent assertions can't coincide. I've made a simple graph to show you that we couldn't possibly never do this again and have 10 more. Bad way to handle that, right? Men, say right. Yes, like nod your head. Don't ever do that. That would be really, really bad. So it is when we comfort a disciple who's in labor pains right now. Sometimes coming to people and you're giving them theological accuracy is the most unloving thing you could possibly be doing right there. Coming and just giving them a nice chart and saying, let me show you how off base you are. You can't not have kids again and then want 10 more. Let me, let me lay it out for you. That's really unloving. What do you do in that moment? You do something really, really simple and really fundamental. Hey, remember to breathe. Let's work on our breathing, shall we? Do it with me, right? And you, and you give them a focal point. Honey, look at me. Let's, let's get through this. That's the more loving thing to do. 
Jesus is saying to his disciples, you will have sorrow, but I'm coming back. Then you will have joy, and no one and no thing will ever take that joy from you. It will be, in fact, happily ever after. And I'm not talking about a fairy tale. Jot this passage down if you don't know it already. It's Romans chapter 8, one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible. It says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all day long. We are being regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The path to this kind of joy, the happily ever after kind of joy, runs through a wide variety of sorrow. We could sum all that up as labor pains. (laughs) A wide variety of different experiential labor pains. Teaching through the Bible leads you on some strange little paths. I found myself this week making up some comparisons to Jesus and pregnant women. Here's what I found. They both have a few things in common. One is that their time will come or has come, right? A pregnant woman has a sense of an internal clock. It's about nine months. Their time's coming, and they know it's coming. Jesus, all through the Gospels, was teaching his disciples, and his life had a point. He knew there was this ticking time coming where his hour would come. And if you read through the Gospels, it's interesting because many times he says, my hour is what? Not yet come. My hour is not yet come. Do this. Keep this on the down low. Why? Because my hour is not yet come. And then there's a switch. For John, it's John chapter 13, 1. My hour has come. The hour has come. Both know that there's no turning back. This is their path. Once you hear I'm pregnant, even if you don't like pain, guess what? That's your path. You are marching steadily towards something. I don't like being fat. You're not fat. You're pregnant. Keep walking towards it. This is the thing. I don't like pickles. Too bad. Your body craves pickles. You're going to eat them, right? There's a, there's a certain thing that you get on this thing, and, and that is your path, and there's no turning back. That was Jesus, too. Both pregnant women and Jesus face the future with mixed emotions. There's kind of a sense of dread and excitement that comes. Pain is unavoidable, but there's a joy that is set before them. And they go, man, I sure, don't, I sure wish we could skip over the pain part, but I can't wait to get to that joy part. It, it, it's it's going to be worth it. And you keep telling yourself that, right? It's going to be worth it. Finally, on the other side of the pain, the grief melts. The text says here it's actually forgotten because of the joy. Every woman who has had more than one child lends credence to this truth. The guys are thinking, do you remember how much pain you were in? You're going to do that again? You want to do that again? 
And a woman who's gone through more than one pregnancy gives credence to the fact that it must melt away because they're not only willing but excited to go through it again for the joy that is set before them. Joy coming through suffering is not a new concept, nor is it kind of this pocket truth. I'm not reaching into one tiny corner of the Bible and pulling this out. It's actually a central reality. It's a key part of the story that Jesus is giving his disciples at a key moment in the story, 24 hours before he's about to be crucified. Let me show you just a couple. Jesus taught the path uh, showing them the way. Matthew chapter 16 says, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So being raised is coming, glory is coming, but he's going to suffer many things first. Jesus also took the path showing the way. Hebrews 12 says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And disciples through the centuries have followed their leader on this path. Here's one example, Romans 8.18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Church, we need to come together and remind one another often, look each other in the eyes and say, the story isn't over. This isn't happily ever after yet, right? We're still in the middle of things. You are in labor and looking forward to the birth. That's a great word of comfort. Because you go, oh, so this is to be expected? Yes, it is. You're in labor pains. And it's for a little while. I'm like you. I'm in the back seat of the car, and the parents have just given me a little while. I don't, I don't know what that means exactly. But we trust mom and dad on that one. Listen to this passage on delivery. It's from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and you can read it later if you want. But just, just listen. 2 Corinthians 1.8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers. Talk about setting expectations. Do you hear Paul here? He's telling the church, don't be unaware of this, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, it felt as if we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such deadly peril. And he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. When you rely on God and not on yourself, guess what? You're a joyful person. When you have a front row seat to your own deliverance from God, you're a joyful person. And when you are confident of future deliverance again and again and again, and when you doubt, you look back and you see all the deliverance, guess what? You are a joyful person. Church, we ought to be like one another's birth coach. Now, Jim Gaffigan uh, says that birth coach is a generous title for standing there looking terrified, which is how most, most birth coaches uh, are. Um, 
I really knew I had a couple of jobs. One is don't pass out. I mean, I had several nurses telling me that, so that must be a common thing. And the second one was cut the cord, not the baby. So I just, I locked those two things in. Don't pass out, cut the cord, not the baby. Becky's labor with Curran was, was interesting. It was our very first uh, birth experience. And so we went in there and uh, from my training, I knew that there's a little monitor that they hook up and it, it's tracking my wife's pain, uh, which is an interesting thing, but it's, it's tracking the, the contractions, I should say, uh, which co- coincides with my wife's pain. And, uh, and so in training, it would, you know, it showed this graph and it looked like kind of just a fun roller coaster, right? Well, it's fun for me. A fun roller coaster that just went up and down like the giant dipper, right? So here we are and, and, uh, and sure enough, things started and it would go up and we would do breathing and I'd be holding her hand and, and then it would come back down. I'd kind of watch the monitor, you know. Um, well, we got going on this, like, you know, hours in, whatever it was. And this thing went up like this and it, and it went like this and then it went like this and it stayed there. And I'm looking at the monitor, and I'm holding her hand, and I'm like, just breathe, sweetie. It's almost over. It's going to go down in a little while. This contraction's almost done. And then eventually, the line filled the entire monitor. Now, I've, I went back in my birth coach training, and I'd never, ever seen this or been prepared for this. So I wanted my money back, first of all. I think it was free. I got what I paid for. And so, so I'm looking at it, and I'm going, is this thing broken? And from the verbal and nonverbal cues from my wife, I knew it wasn't broken. She was still in pain. And I didn't know what to do at that point because it wasn't over and I didn't know when it was going to end. And my hand still, I don't have all the mobility in my right hand from her squeezing in that moment. You know what I did is I, I did what I could in that moment. I gave her a focal point. I looked at her. I didn't leave. And I just remembered our breathing. We just breathed and I fed her ice chips as best I could. And she had, literally, she had 20-minute long and beyond contractions with our first child. And it was, it actually put the baby in stress and, and some other things. So it was a bit frightening. What if church were the place that you could look your absolute worst and not care one bit? Where you could go through your excruciating pain of life and have people around you that were holding your hand, that were telling you to remember to look at them, that weren't preaching messages to you, that weren't showing you charts in that moment, but were rubbing your lower back, giving you ice chips, dabbing your forehead with a cool washcloth, whatever was needed in the moment. We ought to be each other's birth coach, church family. We ought to say to one another often, hey, these are only labor pains. I'm here with you. I'm not going anywhere through this. I know it hurts. These are the labor pains. The joy comes later. Jesus told us this was going to be, set our expectation. Joy now, grief, or grief now and joy later. Jesus unveils a radical truth, one that uh, even birth coaches can, can understand, and that's this. The joy is produced not by substitution, but by transformation. Think about your own pain for a moment. Aren't you often tempted to pray, Jesus, take this away from me? God, get me out of this, change my circumstance, change my relationship, change my job, change this thorn in my flesh, this ailment that I have. But go back to childbirth for a moment. The very cause of your pain is the source of your joy. It's a baby. If you prayed that prayer in that moment and someone else had the power to grant that wish, they might say, well, 
This little watermelon looks about the same size as a baby. Let's remove the baby and give this woman some refreshing watermelon. That's not joyful. That doesn't equate to joy at all. That equates to sorrow upon sorrow that your baby's been taken away. So, so often we're tempted to pray, God, take it away. Substitute what I'm in right now for something else. Let me tell you God's specialty. God's specialty is taking that something and transforming that pain, that sorrow, into something amazing. It's called redeeming. And that's God's specialty. Take an impossible situation, add the grace of God, and trials turn to triumph and sorrow turns into joy. Deuteronomy 23.5, just listen. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, your God turned the curse into a blessing for you. Why? Because the Lord your God loved you. Think about the life of Joseph. Joseph lived a life that was one big labor pain. He had so much stuff go on in his life. And at the end of it, in Genesis 50, 20, after just the most recent labor pain, he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. God transforms our present reality into something glorious and useful. The Bible says it this way, that God works all things together for good. You might want to keep in mind, sooner or later, right? Because usually when we quote that verse, we're like demanding it to happen right now. But he does so not by replacing, but by redeeming. I wonder if when Jesus was in that upper room and he had this a little while conversation with the disciples, I'll talk about the timing of joy. I wonder if this uh, scene flashed through his mind. This is from John 20, 20. He, Jesus, this is post-resurrection. He showed them his hands and his side. Then his disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Same Jesus, but transformed into glory. What a picture of how God works. I want to use a video now as kind of a sermon illustration. I want you to watch the storyline um, carefully so you can kind of track with a guy by the name of Stephen Curtis Chapman, who himself has lived through some very difficult times being transformed into joy um, as we go. is so far from being over, and that gives us the hope to hold on. Let me put this out to you. If, if your happily ever after has already come, maybe you're dreaming too small. Maybe you're thinking too short-term. This is only to be the labor pains. Isn't it the goodness of God that we get all this joy, all this community, all this goodness, even in the midst of labor? That's the part of the story we're in. Christian, you are pregnant with joy. Remember that. That's why this morning there are people sitting in this room who are considering it all joy, even though they're going through the crud of life right now. There are people who are really, really sick and scared, and yet in the midst of that, they're enduring patiently. There are many others who are hopefully watching and praying, and here's the reason. It's because they trust the one who said these words, in the world you will have tribulation. And then they are taking heart 
just as he instructed. That's a few verses down from where we are this morning in our text. Church, let's be midwives of redemption, not replacing babies with watermelons to try to appease things in the short term, but but to, to walk with people through it, to remember our breathing. I'm in the middle of a book right now called Generous Justice uh, by a guy named Tim Keller. He's a, just a great Christian pastor and thinker and writer. And he says this, he says, In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? This is after a section where he kind of recounts just Greek mythology and all these different places where the gods are something totally different. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? The Christian faith makes no such requirement. Isn't it true that on the cross, on the cross, we see in vivid detail how far God will go to identify with us in our pain and in our grief and in our suffering and in our injustice? As we look on that, we say, God, you understand. You marked the way before it. You've gone through labor before us, showing us the way. What a Savior, not only to tell us the way to walk, but to demonstrate it. If you're taking notes, I'll have you write one last thing down. It's just a great passage that I'm going to read out loud for you, but you may want to soak in a little bit later. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 16 to 18 says this. So, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 